Well, it's always a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you guys. And, you know, last week we celebrated Easter Sunday, which for the whole weekend we remembered the death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, and then we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ affords us victory over death, over sin, uh, over guilt and shame, the wrath and the judgment that we deserve, right? That Jesus Christ paid for it all. And that his resurrection gave us victory over all things. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, Paul is able to say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because the power of death is now defeated in the victory of Jesus Christ. So the question now that we want to answer for this next upcoming series in Ecclesiastes, specifically we're focusing in on chapter 7, is how can we live this new life in Jesus Christ, right? This new life in victory, this victory over sin and death and judgment and wrath. How do we as Christians live this new life in victory? Now, in ancient Roman tradition, after a major military victory, uh, the Roman generals that were in charge of leading that great victory would be paraded around the Roman streets and the people and the troops and everyone would just praise them. And they would celebrate this military general. And the military general would ride around in this grand chariot with four drawn horses. And this would take a day or two of just riding around and everyone getting a glimpse of this almost now deified Roman general, they, they honored him and said, man, he is immortal. But while he was parading around, there was this one slave, this one slave that would ride on that chariot with the Romans, the military general. And he had one job. And his one job was to say this one phrase. And I'm going to read it for you guys. It's on here. It says, Respis poste hominem te esse memento, memento mori. Powerful, right? No, I'm just kidding. This is the translation of that phrase. It says this, look behind, remember thou art mortal, remember you must die. And I think this last phrase, memento mori, remember you must die. The slave served as a reminder for this Roman general, that his life was finite, that eventually his life too would come to an end. Memento mori. It's ironic that in the moment of glory and worship, in the most important time of his life where he's receiving all of this praise, in victory, the slave was reminding him, no, remember, you too will die. And this idea of memento mori is not something that's meant to be somber or morbid, but it's supposed to give clarity and inspiration and motivation to the general. To not just be caught up resting in his laurels, so to speak, but to remember that in a short, limited life, to live wisely. And I think what's interesting is that 
you know, this whole idea of memento mori, remember you must die, is thought to have originated from these, the ancient Romans. But what we see is that two to 400 plus years earlier, in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, he says this, something similar in verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Much like the slave that was sitting behind the Roman general whispering, Memento mori, remember you must die. King Solomon also says, remember, death is the destiny of everyone. And so everyone should take this to heart. And he says, this, that's why a funeral is better than a party. It's interesting that King Solomon would say this, right? Because King Solomon, the man that God had afforded all wisdom, right? He had given him all wisdom to know everything. And yet at the same time, he had bestowed on him all the blessings of all honor and power and military strength. And he had experienced it all, right? It, almost to the point where he had overindulged in everything in food, in wine, in promiscuity, in parties and festivities. He had experienced it all. So when he says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, there's some weight to that, right? Because he's experienced it all. He's eaten it all. And yet he says there's something better than a house of feasting, a house of party. It's the house of mourning. Why is a house of mourning better than a house of feasting? I think what he's getting at is this. He's not saying that the house of feasting or parties are bad because he's not saying it's evil or anything like that. He's saying there's something better, right? So yeah, at parties, you go there and your whole sole purpose is to enjoy that moment, right? You're celebrating either that person or if it's their birthday or an event or some type of thing that happened, right? And your whole goal is in that moment to experience and enjoy that moment. Whether it's the way you party or drinking or enjoying your friends or whatever it is, you're thinking about that moment, right? But he says, at the house of mourning, you're not just thinking about that moment and that death, but in the house of mourning, it, it forces every single one of the people that are at that funeral to take a step back and to think about the brevity of their life, the shortness of their life, that they too will one day encounter the same fate as the one who has passed away. And in that moment, it causes the people who are in that house of mourning to step back and think, how am I supposed to live in this life today? Knowing that my life is so short and that the end is uh, the, the, the final destiny is for everyone, that death is awaiting everyone, how can I make the most of this time here on this earth? And again, the idea of memento mori, the, the idea of this is not to be morbid or somber, but it's to provide clarity, to provide motivation, inspiration for how we need to live in this life today. In the NAVAC, the application commentary, Ian Proven, he says this, the work that death and its friend illness must do in our lives is to break in on us and confront us with this important reality, namely that we are mortal beings 
who only live for a short time, whereas God is God. Death is an evangelist. I thought that was kind of interesting that he phrased it that way. That death is an evangelist. That he's knocking on our doors and telling us that we need to be conscious of how we live in this short life. That we need to be wise in what we do. And so I think our prayer for us here today is Psalm 90 verse 12. It says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Knowing that our days are numbered, the prayer is God teach us how can we live wisely in the short few years or decades or whatever it is that we might have in this life. And so King Solomon, I think he gives us two things to consider. In the shortness and the brevity of life that we encounter, what are two things that we can consider? in how we live in this life, all right? And the first one is this. I think King Solomon says that in light of our, the brevity of life, the shortness of how much time we have in this life, the one thing that we should consider is our legacy, the reputation that we leave behind at the moment of death. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, the first part of verse 1, it says this, A good name is better than fine perfume. A good name is better than fine perfume. A good name translated as reputation or legacy, it's better than fine perfume. Why? Why is it better? Well, fine perfume here, it could be translated as oil. And in the past, they would, they would use it uh, to smell nice. They would use it to look better. You know, you could, uh, you know, shape your hair with it. Or it would be used to anoint someone, to honor someone. Or when someone was passing away, they would use it uh, to embalm them. But in all of those situations, all those cases, what is true about all of them is that it's for that one moment, right? They might smell nice for that day, or they might look nice for that day, or they might be honored for that day, but it's just for that moment. Whereas a reputation, a legacy will last even after your death. And so he's saying, yeah, sure, perfume is great, but a good name, a legacy that we leave is better. Renowned poet and singer and all-around wise man of love, John Mayer, once quoted, if you're pretty, you're pretty, but the only way to be beautiful is to be loving. Otherwise, it's just congratulations about your face. It's kind of silly. You can laugh if you want. (laughs) But even he understood how temporary a pretty face was, how, how shallow it was to be so concerned about the smell and the honor of that one moment. What we see is that a godly reputation is what lasts. And not only does it precede you in this life where you go, but it also, pre- it also precedes you when, you when you die. It's the lasting legacy that we leave As believers, we're called not to just build a legacy or reputation for ourselves, but a godly reputation, one that points others to Jesus Christ. And one legacy that I'm reminded of is of Lois. And I'm not talking about my daughter, but I'm talking about the book of 2 Timothy in Scripture. What we see in chapter 1, verse 5, it says this. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. He's talking to Timothy. A faith that dwelt first and your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul was able to recall 
the faith of Timothy's grandmother. He says, Timothy, and he's writing to Timothy, right? And he says, I remember the faith that your grandmother had. And in her life and in her words and deeds, she exhibited faith and loved, loved Jesus and loved God. And I saw that was imparted to her daughter, Eunice. And Eunice grew up in the faith, and she loved God, and she pursued him and Bible studies and all those things. And that faith that was in Lois and your grandmother and your mother, Eunice, says, Timothy, I see in you. What an amazing legacy that has been left. That from faith, you see this godly generation being passed down from family to family. Now, some of us might say, well, I don't have any children, right? I don't have a godly legacy to leave. Or maybe you're old enough to the point where your kids are all graduated and married, and you're like, it's too late for me to impart any godly wisdom to them and legacy because they're already living their own life. Well, what we see is what Apostle Paul says. You know, he didn't have any children. He didn't have a family. But we see he's still thinking in terms of reputation and legacy as well. Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 1 through 2 in 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, a man with no children, he says, Timothy, you are my true child in the faith. Meaning that he is investing his faith into the life of Timothy from a young age. You know, Timothy at the time was a young pastor, probably in his 20s, and he's like, I'm going to pour into you. I'm going to love on you and care, care for you and teach you the ropes of how to be a pastor. And we see it throughout 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He's teaching him how to conduct himself, how to speak, how to not be ashamed of his age, but to uh, be confident in the gospel as he uh, Uh, ministers to elders and people who are older than him, and he's constantly teaching him. And he says, you are my child in the faith. And for us who don't have kids, and also who do have kids, how awesome would it be for us to leave a legacy of people around us that are affected by the gospel and know Jesus Christ because of our impact, because of what we say, because of how we live. That's the plus side, the positive side. But there's also another warning, a caution, that comes from the Old Testament. What we see is there's not only a generational of godly legacy, but we see a generational sin that's also passed down from time to time. We see it in Abraham, the father, father Abraham, as we know him, right? Him and his wife Sarah went down to Egypt. And the Egyptians were like, wow, Sarah looks really pretty. I wonder who she is. And they asked Abraham, hey, so who is that woman that you're with? You know, we might have a suitor for her. And Abraham, in his fear, he lied and he deceived the Egyptians and said, oh, yeah, that's just my sister. Yeah, 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 she's just a normal, just a friend, right? And he deceived the Egyptians. And then what happens? We see Abraham's son, Isaac, as he goes to the men of Gerar, and the men of Gerar sees Isaac's wife and sees Rebekah, and they're like, wow, Rebekah's so pretty. We might have a suitor for her. You know, I wonder if, hey, hey, Isaac, you know, who is that woman that you're with? And 
Isaac says, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, just someone that I'm traveling with, a friend, a sister, and because he was afraid for his life, just like his father was. And what we see is Isaac's son, Jacob, the third generation, he wants this blessing from Isaac because Isaac's about to give this birthright to his first son, Esau. And Jacob is like, man, I want that. And because he knows that Isaac is partially blind, he dresses up uh, you know, in the furs and, 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 and tries to be hairy like his older brother Esau and puts on the smell of Esau and he comes up to his father Jacob or his father Isaac and deceives him to steal the birthright. And we see generation after generation of deception. We see it also in, the, in King David, right, who, who was adulterous in the way he uh, slept with his, one of his soldiers' wives while the soldier was out in battle fighting for King David's uh, battle. And we see that King David's son, King Solomon, as we see, he, he has thousands of wives and thousands of concubines, and he is sexually promiscuous, and we see this sin as being passed down. It's a word of caution for the generational sins, because every word and every deed is passed down, and we can either leave a godly legacy or leave generational sins, and so we need to be cautious about how we invest in the people uh, that, are before, that are after us. You know, if people spoke about you after you passed, what would they say? What would they say you were passionate about? You know, would they say that you were passionate about the Lakers or traveling or the Avengers or, uh, you know, food or, or God? Or what would they say that you were passionate about? What would they say about your character? Would they say that you were generous or that you were selfish, um, that you were sacrificial, that you were giving, that you were filled with integrity, or that you were a little bit shady, or that you were filled with grace, or that you were forgiving? You know, what kind of legacy would you have left? And how are the people around you affected by your life as you pass? A godly reputation is built over time. It's built in every word and every deed. It's not just this one spectacular donation or this spectacular act, but it's every word and it's every deed, every comment that we make that builds up or tears down our reputation. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 16. He says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We need to be concerned about our legacy in light of the death that awaits all of us. But not only does Solomon tell us to look at the legacy that's, that we're going to leave behind, right? He doesn't just say, you know, when you die, you leave this legacy, so think about all that legacy and just what you're going to leave behind, right? But he also says to consider what you're going to receive, that when you die, think about what you're going to receive in heaven. Ecclesiastes chapter one, 7, verse 1, the second part, it says this. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Right? The day of death is better than the day of birth. Why does he say that? Why is the day of death better than the day of birth? 
Well, I think it could be summed up in a few, in two words, right? The first word is potential. When you think about a baby who was born, you think about their potential, of what they could be, of who they're going to be, right? Uh, in, in Korean tradition, they have this thing called Torjabi, where at, at their first birthday, what they do is they have a party and they lay out all these different things, uh, like, a, like a gavel, uh, a stethoscope, uh, some money. Maybe if, if you're Christian, you'll put a Bible down, uh, an instrument. And the whole idea is you put the baby down and you say, choose something. And if the baby chooses the gavel, they're going to be a judge or a doctor or a nurse. If they grab the instrument, they're going to be a musician. If they grab a ball, they're going to be an athlete. If they grab money, they're going to be rich. If they grab their Bible, oh, they might be a pastor, (laughs) right? And we have all of these expectations at their birthday, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, we have these hopes and dreams. We hope that they're healthy, and we hope that they have a good life, and that they're successful, and they become X, Y, and Z. It's all about potential. But in reality, we know, you know, for those of us who have raised children, but not only that, for us who have lived life, that all of those hopes and dreams are not actually ever really realized, right? Maybe one of, one of those two of those things, but we, what we encounter is that maybe they're not as smart as we thought they were, right? Maybe they, you know, they encounter some kind of sickness, so they're not as healthy as we thought they were going to be. Uh, maybe they're not as nice as we thought they were going to be, uh, and they're a little more evil than we think they are. Uh, and all of that is a product of sin, right? It's either their sinfulness, it's either a byproduct of our sinfulness and when we raise our children, and then it's the sinfulness of the world, right? As they experience the things of the world and they're either oppressed or influenced or tempted, they're faced with sinfulness in the world. And as a product of that, what we see is that all that potential and all that hope, a lot of that gets diminished to the point where even in Romans chapter 8, and we won't read it here, but in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 to 23, it says that the world and even us as Christians, we groan in this life. There's a sense where we're like, oh my gosh, this world. Another sickness we've seen in our family. Uh, Another immoral act that we see in the world. Uh, Another terrorist act. Another bomb. And we we see the world and we feel like it's going up into flames and it's easy to be discouraged. And we groan. And it says even the world groans. And yet we groan. And what it says is we yearn for that moment when Christ will return. Because when Christ returns, which is at that moment, you know, when we die and when Christ returns, he says that moment is better because it's not just about potential. It's not just about what we might see and what we hope for. On the day of Christ, when Christ returns, or when we die, when we're with Christ, all the things that we thought were potential actually become fulfilled. They actually become realized. That there is no more sickness, there is no more evil, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. All the things that we desired 
are realized on the day of death. That's why he says the day of death is better than the day of birth because day of birth is about potential. The day of death is about fulfillment. Charles Spurgeon says, death is the entrance into glory. That we enter into glory from the difficult world. So even Apostle Paul, he says that it's hard for him to think, man, should I stay in this world or should I be with Christ? Because he's in jail, he's in prison, his life is about to end, and he says this in Philippians, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. See, Paul had not only his legacy in mind, but he had that future end goal in mind. He knew that in all his suffering, in all his imprisonments, in all his persecutions, that at the end goal, when he was with Christ, that was the greatest, the blessed time for him. It was a day of fulfillment, of higher perfection, greater purity, deeper rest, better company, all of those things. It was the entrance into glory. So knowing that, knowing that the day of uh, death is better than the day of birth, we are to seek this out, to pursue it, to understand it. But that should also help us to reflect on how to understand the life that we're living right now. For example, now, tonight, I am watching the Avengers Endgame. Now, some of you guys have seen it already, and no, I don't know what happens, so I'm not going to spoil it for anyone here, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we know what's going to happen, right? There is no way that Thanos is going to win, right? I mean, I hate to spoil it for you, but the Avengers are going to win, right? Or maybe some of you who watched it already are like, oh, man, he doesn't know. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that the Avengers are going to win. Yeah, there might be a significant cost, there might be X, Y, and Z, but in the end, the Avengers will win, right? And so while I'm watching the movie, I'm going to see a lot of crazy things, I'm sure. I'm sure I'll see something crazy like Thanos, you know, snapping his fingers like in the last movie where half the Marvel Universe disappears. And, you know, if you haven't seen the first one, then I don't care, it's already too late, you know, I'm <laughs> spoiling it for you. But half the Marvel Universe disappears, okay, because he snaps his rings and he has all, okay? But something crazy will happen. But I'll look at the clock, and I'll see there's still an hour and a half left in the movie, and I'll say, you know what? The Avengers will figure it out. The Avengers will put it together. You know, they'll stop bickering with one another. You know, they'll love one another. They'll avenge the loss of these people. And Thanos will not win. The Avengers will eventually win. I think about that in the grand scheme of even our lives. You know, when we're thinking about death, the ultimate victory that we have in Jesus Christ, right? Because of what Christ has done, we know that he's risen from the dead. We all have victory in Christ. And yet when we live in this earth, I think the victory should help us understand how to, how to interpret the things that are going on in our lives. So that when we go through suffering, we understand that the suffering will not last. That when we are perfected in Christ, that we will no longer experience suffering. 
to understand that even in persecution for the gospel, that in heaven we will be rewarded for the persecution. To know that even in sadness, that Christ will wipe away every tear. In every longing, in every hole that you feel inadequate or insecure or you need something that in Christ you will be fulfilled, that you will be made whole. So even in the darkest times, we can know we have a hope. We have a victory in the end. And not only that, even in joy, right? We know not to be too high and too low because even in joy, we know that there is a greater joy that we have ahead in Christ. Even in sickness, to the point of death, we can still know and hope because we know that that is not the end. It's ironic because the death that is supposed to cause fear and anxiety and sadness for the Christian produces clarity and inspiration and motivation. It teaches us to say, in light of the short life that we have to live, we don't fear death, but now it gives us a laser focus to how we need to live this life for Christ to give up and sacrifice whatever we might need to, and even in suffering to say it's worth it because in this short while, the life that we have, we need to leave that legacy that honors Christ and lives for him. As Christians, we have that blessing where we can practically laugh at the face of death because of the victory that we have in the death of Jesus Christ, right? We don't have to fear death because of the one death that paid for it all, which is the death of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's also able to say this. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer is that for all of us, death is the destiny of all of us, right? Memento mori. King Solomon says death is the destiny of all of us. My prayer is that in light of that, all of us, we'd be able to take a step back to think about our finite lives, the brevity of this life, to consider how can we live this life wisely? for the Lord, for his name. That's my prayer for us this time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you because when we face something as uh, morbid and as uh, anxiety-producing and as fearful as uh, death, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death and sacrifice, we can look at it with a new hope, renewed vision and focus, because we no longer have to fear death, but we only need to consider how we want to spend this life for your glory and for your kingdom. And so Lord, I pray that you would allow each and every one of us an opportunity to step back carefully reflect upon our lives to see how we can honor you, the life that you've given us. 
thank you for this time. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.